Holy Father, you are good and true, and your word is good and true. We ask you right now that you would, as you inspired it through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, under the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate it, that you would allow us to hear it with spiritual ears, that our hearts would not be uh, dull and heavy, that our eyes would be opened to see the beauty of your truth and be transformed in its light, that we might look more and more like your perfect word, the Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, a few months ago, you, you might have read uh, famed novelist Cormac McCarthy uh, passed away. He's known for many books, uh, Blood Meridian, No Country for, for Old Men, uh, and perhaps most famously, the post-apocalyptic novel, The Road, which was adapted by, uh, into a film starring Viggo Mortensen. Uh, it's kind of intense, uh, but it, it's a great film. But in any case, the story of The Road tells a story about a man and his son, now, they lived in a blighted and destroyed world. You don't really know what happened in this world, but, but, but the sun, you know, the sky has been scorched. The world is um, kind of dust and ash, and society has kind of descended. Uh, there's, I mean, there's, it's violent, it's ugly, it's cruel. There's cannibalism. There's, there's, it's the sort of world in which the question as a, an author puts it, Alan Noble wrote, writes about this, the question is essentially, why not commit suicide? Why continue to live in a world where there seems to be no visible future? And this is, this is the question that faces the man and his son. And this is, the, this is actually already been answered once as the, as the mother of the son has actually taken her life after he was born. And so the man faces a choice of how to raise his son in a world where it seems there is no future. There is nothing on the horizon. There is only bleakness. And so he has to make the decision to teach the son that the world is good and that it is good that they are there and that they are the good guys. They are there to carry the fire. They are there to live on and be faithful. And so he has to decide to take one step and then another step and then another step in order to lead his son into the world in the face of what seems like nothingness. I bring this up because the vision that Isaiah has provokes a similar question. How do you minister? How do you walk faithfully? How do you live before God? How do you proclaim the word of the Lord, in Isaiah's case, in the face of a seeming apocalypse, a catastrophe that threatens to undo the future of everything that you hold dear. And this is not just a question for Isaiah. A lot, for, for Isaiah, a lot of us have faced this crisis, I think, in the last couple of years. It's been a crisis of meaning. The last few years have seemed to be uh, ones of national crisis, of global crisis, of personal crisis. We've had unrest, right? We've had a global pandemic and almost universal shutdowns. We've had uh, government responses, we've had wars, several wars at this point that are being universally uh, broadcasted. We've had a media technology ecosystem that seems to exacerbate all of our social divisions. We've had friendships, we've had families, we've had, we've had cities and societies split. 
seems like things are decaying in America in such a way, in certain areas, that, that even the basic understandings of, I don't know, general biology uh, have disintegrated. And it's not just the global scale, it's not just the national macro scale. A lot of us have had micro crises of meaning, right? It's not the apocalypses out there, it's the apocalypses and the catastrophes in our own lives, right? Everyday catastrophes like the end of a job, the end of a marriage, the doctor's diagnosis for yourself or perhaps a loved one, a spouse, a child. I think at some, at some point, all of us will face a day when the catastrophe, when the apocalypse comes and we look out on the horizon and all you see is a big blank space or perhaps a dark cloud, a tornado coming for everything that you have been hoping and building for your whole life. And the question is, how do you remain faithful on that day? How do you hold on to God? How do you walk before him when it seems like he is threatening everything you hold dear? How do you not just collapse in fear or retreat? Because the reality is, if you don't have a question for how you stand firm on that day, what the meaning of your life is on that day, you don't really actually have an answer for how you're faithful on the sunny days on the days when everything is shining, on the days when there's not a cloud in the sky, on the days when the future is bright. It's the, it's the catastrophe that reveals where your deepest hope and the deepest foundation of your, of your life and your faithfulness is, is rooted. And so what I want to do right now is to explore the foundations of our life, the foundations of our faithfulness through looking at the vision that Isaiah had, both of God and of the future. And I, I want to I see that there's the roots here of, of the possibility of faithfulness in that day. Comfort in that day. Not cheap comfort, but the deep comfort of the reality and nature of God. So the question is how? What I want to do is I want to break that up into kind of four, four parts, uh, working backwards first, uh, is just to look at the fact that the end is coming. Second, I want to look at what it means for God to be holy. Third, what it means for you, uh, what it means that you are not. And fourth, uh, our hope in the seed that is the stump. All right, so that will become clear as we move on. But I want to start our time at the, at the end, right? The whole passage as we see it is a beginning, in many ways. It's a commissioning passage. It's, it's, scholars will tell you this is the commissioning passage where Isaiah receives a commission to his ministry, his very long ministry during the 8th century, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But our vision, as we'll get into, was during the reign of Isaiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the backdrop here is twofold. First, externally, there is a threat coming, the threat of invasion against the kingdom of Judah by the then dominant kingdom and, 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 um, of Assyria, right? There's this problem that this, 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 this massive empire is coming, and it seems like Judah is about to collapse. But internally, this is even worse. There's a deeper problem because the kingdom of Judah is ripe for judgment. So there's a threat of judgment coming, but there's, there's, there's the fact that it's merited, Right, so Judah, if you, if you peruse the chapters before and after, you realize that God's people at this point are full of malice. They shed blood. They oppress the poor. 
They commit idolatry. They commit sexual immorality. They lie. They dishonor the Sabbath. They engage in syncretistic worship of God. They take all the commandments and shred them into bits and say, God, God, and worship in that way. And so what is God's commission for Isaiah's ministry? Well, he calls Isaiah and he sends him out as his prophet to declare a word. But what is the word? The word is one of judgment. Not just any judgment, though. It's the judgment about the people's response to Isaiah's ministry and what will become of them as a result. And here's the paradox. Here's here's the first kind of surprise here, is that God has declared punishment on their refusal to listen by causing them to continue to not listen. God's judgment upon Israel's obstinacy and sinful refusal to listen to his word is to allow them to continue to fail to heed his word. He punishes sin with more sin. And this is a principle we see in scripture. It's often, uh, we, don't, we don't actually grasp often. Oftentimes we think, well, there's sin and then there's obvious external judgment. But I, I'll just say to you today, if you're walking in sin and you think that God is taking it lightly because it hasn't caught up to you in some external visible way, that actually may be the scariest judgment of all. For God to pretend, for God to, continue to let you walk in your sin as you store up wrath and judgment in a final way. So here, God punishes, decrees a punishment for Israel to continue in its darkness. But then, second, he does, he does issue a decree that there will be an external judgment. Right? How long will this blindness of theirs, this spiritual blindness persist? It will persist until cities lie in waste. Their sin, their folly, their evil will persist until God brings a further judgment upon them. Not from the Assyrians. They will escape that in mercy. But when the the Babylonians come, the Neo-Babylonians come and arise and carry them off in the invasion. And at that time, they will be devastated. They will be destroyed. They will be carried off. And Jerusalem will be no more. Now get what this means for Isaiah. God has decreed that Isaiah's ministry should be one of failure and pain. Right? People often get the, idea, get the impression that the prophets, um, they sign up for a ministry of, in a sense, hating their nations. They did not hate their nations. They loved their nations. Isaiah was, in many ways, a, a Hebrew nationalist. He, he cared deeply. He loved the people of God, and he loved his nation. And God, instead, tells him, you're going to preach until the walls come down on everything you have ever given yourself to. Every street you've ever walked down, every tree you've ever sat under will be burned to the ground, and this will be how you know that your ministry has been a success. You will succeed in my call upon your life when all lies in ruins around you. This is the job. And here's the thing, Isaiah does it. Right? Isaiah does more, but he answers, here I am, Lord, here am I. I, I will do this. And he, he preaches. He preaches boldly. He preaches powerfully. He preaches uh, in wild ways. He walks around naked for a couple of years as a sign act of God's judgment upon the people of God. And he preaches and he preaches and, and for his reward. Church tradition has it that he was martyred. Perhaps even sawn in two. And he said yes to it. The question becomes, what 
did he see? What did God show him so as to provoke the kind of faithfulness that Isaiah needed to endure in and through several kings, several years, decades of preaching with the only reward being the death of all that he loves? At the end of the day, we'll see that what God gave him was a vision of himself in several phases. He gave him a vision of himself, and he gave him a vision of Isaiah, and, and, and then he gave him, gave him a vision of hope. But the first thing he did is he gave him a vision of himself. So what did Isaiah see? Several points, but I want to make a few here. The first thing he saw is that God is the king, right? Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, and the hem of his robe reaches into the temple. And there's a dead giveaway here. Everything that Isaiah sees is kingship language, right? So first of all, he says, I've seen the king, right? But the, the throne and the smoke and the guards, all of it, all of it bespeaks the kingship of God, right? The temple was built as a holy, as a holy palace for King God. And all, we could go into all the, all the imagery and symbolism of the temple with all the outer rings and the gold and the way it, it th- is a throwback to Mount Sinai where God originally gives the people the law and becomes their king by way of covenant. But he sees that God is king. He sees that he is Lord. But he's not just any king. He's not just any Lord. He is a unique one, right? Everything about the vision declares that he is unique and set apart and transcendent and singular. And without comparison, he is immense, right? The, the, the train of his robe fills the temple. The hem of his pants fill up the whole room. There is, the, the, the image is not just that he's really, really big. The image that he's, he's off the scale, off any kind of size comparison chart you could ever imagine. He is infinite. He is transcendent. Creation is a dot compared to the vastness of his eternal existence. As Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, the Lord cannot be contained by the temple. He transcends it and even the highest heavens. Second, He's, he's majestic, and this is, this is signified by the seraphim. The seraphim, what are the seraphim? The seraphim are, in, in, they're intensely freaky angels, right? There's all these different rankings of angels in the scripture, but, and we don't have time to go into all the, all the scholarship on this, but, but it's suggested that the seraphim are this unique class of angels, the fiery ones, who either in themselves are flaming in their appearance or, or almost have snake-like, dragon-like qualities that, that if you really want to get crazy with it, these, these are flying, flame-throwing dragons who if you beheld, uh, you would lose your bowels because these are the most terrifying beings you could ever imagine. And they're just floating in front of them. And what are they doing? Well, they're praising God in voices so loud that it shakes the ramparts. And all they're doing is praising his name. And, and second, they're guarding their eyes from him. They're guarding their eyes from it. Now, here's the thing. The seraphim, the angels are actually, what they are is they are court functionaries. They're royal guards. And typically, royal guards, what what do they do? Royal guards typically function to protect the king from unwanted intruders. So an intruder comes in. They're not supposed to be able to approach the king. And so the guards are there, and they keep keep intruders at bay, at a distance. Why? Because he's too important, but also so that he might be protected. But, But is it God, really, that needs protection here? 
No, in the temple, on the tabernacle, the priests functioned as guards to keep the people out. Why? So that the holiness and wrath of God wouldn't consume them for approaching him. And even here, the seraphim, the flaming dragons, the ones who would terrify us if we encounter them, they guard their eyes. They guard their eyes in his presence so that they might not be consumed. Because the glory and the light and the fire and the infinite power and beauty of this God is too much to behold. And this brings us to to an understanding that this is a contrast vision of the king. Right? Remember when this was. That time stamp at the beginning of the passage is important. This is the year that King Isaiah died. King Isaiah, if you don't know your biblical history as much, um, King Isaiah was actually a decent king. He was actually a pretty good king for most of his reign. He reigned for 52 years, and he was actually kind of an institution. The last year or so, we, we've seen, think about, think about the, the death of Queen Elizabeth. She reigned for something like 70 years. She was an institution. People, people lived and died under her monarchy. Like, they, they lived, they were born, they, they lived, they died, and, and they passed, and she was on her throne. Isaiah was something similar, right? Isaiah was an institution. Isaiah was unchanging. Isaiah had been there forever. And what happens? Actually, the Bible tells us, it's actually fairly sad. He, 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 in, his, he in his piety, in his self-righteousness, got arrogant, and he went in, and he took the role of a priest. He tried to offer up incense before the Lord, and the Lord uh, struck him struck him and cursed him with a plague, uh, with leprosy. Leprosy was essentially um, uh, a curse of looking like you were part of the living dead. You were a zombie. And so he, he died unclean, out on the margins, decaying. And what we have here is Isaiah, King Isaiah, probably the best kind of king you could have, dying and, and decaying in the margins. And what do you have on the throne? God seated, eternal, unchanging, immutable, forever, above all of the vicissitudes of history and time and chance. He does not change. He does not decay. He is other. And all of this goes into what it means for the seraphs to cry, holy, holy, holy. God is unique and singular and set apart and high and above and perfect where everything else is shifting and changing and decaying and weak and sinful. Before we get to a further dimension of his holiness, his purity, this is the thing you need to see when it comes to your obedience in the face of the coming catastrophes in your life. And I don't know what they are. The one who issues your call to faithfulness is none other than the creator king. He's not just some guy. He's not just some, some, some boss. He's not, not another human lord. He is the author of your very existence, the lord of all, the unchanging and unchangeable king. And two points follow from this. First, the first is simply, he is the lord. He has the right to demand it of you. And it is right for us to acknowledge that there is an authority above us that no matter any explanation, no matter whether or not it makes sense to us, no matter how it hurts, no matter that it is right to bend the knee and give our obedience to him because he has authored us. Second, you should have hope in this though. Because at the end of the day, when everything else around Isaiah was falling apart, 
when everything else that was stable and secure in his life was gone, God is always on his throne, unchanged and unchanging. Here's the thing. If you try to face the apocalypses of your life, the catastrophes of your life, in your own strength, or in the strength, whatever, whatever you put your hope in, if it is an earthly thing, your own competence, your own autonomy, your own will, the fact that you've built your company from nothing, and the fact that you've come back from illness, or the fact that you, I don't know, convinced your wife to marry you and nobody thought you had a chance. I don't know, whatever it is, your skill and ability, I, I don't know, being an American, whatever, whatever you're tempted to put your hope in, all of these things are earthly fleeting things. And at the end of the day, your strength will fail. You are finite. God, however, is infinite. And he is the bulwark against all time and chance and evil. And so Isaiah has a, has a vision of the king and lord of the universe who created all things, who is before them and will be there long after them, and it alters his life. But there is something else that Isaiah saw in this moment. See, it wasn't only a contrast vision of King Isaiah and the Lord. It was a contrast vision between the Lord and Isaiah himself. Isaiah begins to see himself in a way he had never really fully grasped. Well, here, what does he say? He says, I am an unclean man among an unclean people. See, here's the thing. Isaiah is a prophet, probably with a, with a background in the priesthood. And it's very apparent that Isaiah saw the uncleanness of the people. Go back and read the first chapters, right? And, and isn't that typical? I think the easiest part of the prophet's job is to see the uncleanness of the people. I think many of us could do a pretty good job at that if we wanted to. It's, it's very easy to spot the sins of our neighbors. It's very easy to, 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 to spot their hypocrisies and their arrogance and their self-centeredness and their lies and their, and their petty petty jealousies and their bad political opinions and, and their bad taste in music, whatever it is, it's very easy to look around us and see the wickedness in the hearts of our neighbors and come out looking pretty clean by comparison, right? We're like, we're like two kids walking, walking into their mom's kitchen and one fell in the mud. The only one was just playing in the dirt. Look, mommy's muddy. It's filthy. I'm good. But when you walk into the fluorescent lights, what do you see? That kid is pig pen too, just covered in dirt. But relatively, he's righteous. And this is how many of us operate. We have a sense of our relative righteousness because we're not as bad as, we're not as hypocritical as, we're not as lustful as. But here's the thing, when Isaiah comes into the flaming, glorious purity and presence of God, he has a sense of his true state, his true uncleanness. He is an unclean man among an unclean people. He is one of them. When he enters into the presence of the one who is the center of all value and all goodness and all righteousness, who is purity itself, he senses who he is. And he is undone. Have you ever come undone? Have you ever said, woe is me? Not just, woe is me, I spilled the coffee, right? No, woe is me, I, I, I made an oopsie. My, my two-year-old son has started to say, oopsie. Um, no, woe is me, um, woe is me, I have undone my marriage. Woe is me, I have destroyed my company. Woe is me, I have ruined my reputation. Or, or, or not, not I've done it yet, but gosh, I look inside me and it's only... It's only a matter of time, right? 
One of those moments where, where, you, where you've said something and you've hurt someone, you can't take it back, and, and you want to say something like, but that's not really who I am. That's, that, I, was, I was under stress, I was under strain, but then you stop and you think, no, that was in me. That is me. Way too much. And you become ashamed and you start to see where the, how, how, deep, how deep that street goes. It's shot through your whole self and you begin to say, woe is me. I am guilty. And this is not just false guilt, although there is that. Sometimes we feel guilty for things we shouldn't. But it's true guilt, an objective sense of the reality that if there is a God, if there is, if there is an appropriation between goodness and right behavior, righteousness, I don't deserve that goodness because of who I am and what I've done. And I recognize that. And there's an appropriateness to at some point in your life coming to see that. And if you don't see that, if you don't see that, that you don't deserve from God all the good things, but in fact, when it comes to your own righteousness, when it comes to our behavior, when it comes to my works, I deserve from him the opposite. Right? Isaiah comes to this revelation and it breaks him. And what he comes to recognize is that when it comes to King God, he has no right to demand anything from him. No righteousness to claim, to press against him and say, you owe me. And this is so important for us. When the day comes, because one of the things that makes the day, the catastrophe, the, all that much worse is, is, is having this sense that God has owed you and failed to come through. Like, unless you, like the psalmist says, if, if God should take account of sin, who, O Lord, can stand? That when the day comes, right? When the day comes, people who are convinced of their own goodness will always think that God fails the contract. And then, on top of the injury of the suffering, there's the insult of feeling owed and betrayed by God. And then being alienated from him and thinking that you cannot turn from him because he already didn't give you what you think he owes you. And so you're bereft, not only of what you think he owes you, but you're bereft of any sense that he might be a help to you because you start to think him cold and hard towards you. A withholding God. No, it's only when you recognize that from his hand you deserve nothing that he can ever start to be hope to you when you have nothing. But that is not all that Isaiah sees. There is the final thing. There is the hope. Not just the holiness of his transcendent majesty, not just the holiness of his moral purity, but there's actually the holiness of his merciful kindness and his grace. And we begin to see that in the coal and the seed, and the one Isaiah saw. Let's start with the flaming coal. Remember, after Isaiah is undone, God sends the seraph with a coal from beneath the altar, and he uses it to apply the fire to Isaiah's lips and to burn away his sin. And in, in sending that, God reveals himself to Isaiah as the gracious God, the Holy One who can actually sanctify and cleanse and take away sin by, by, by lighting up 
his mouth with the fire of this cleansing judgment. He, he representatively cleanses Isaiah all the way through and lights him up with a flame to preach the fiery holiness of God in Israel as itself. But, but he, he begins to show his grace on the throne. But that's not all. It's not just grace to Isaiah. There's actually grace for Israel itself. And we see this, and this is kind of complicated. Recall the line at the end of the prophecy about the seed. See, here's the thing. You have this tree that represents Israel. Israel is often in Scripture represented as a tree. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, we have this, we have this, this parable of the vineyard and, and, and Israel being this tree, Israel being these vines that should be growing up properly. But in here, in this prophecy... The tree is burned in judgment down to its stump. But there is a seed in that stump, or rather the stump is the seed. And that is the beginning of hope because later in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, there will be a prophecy about a seed who comes from the line of Jesse. A seed from the messianic line of David. There would be one who would come and be raised up as a great king, a great anointed one, Jesus, through whom God would restore and renew and resurrect the tree of Israel, and in fact, all the nations. Here's the paradox, though. How do seeds grow? Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Unless a seed undergoes a death, it will not grow up again. How does Jesus die? John tells us in that same chapter, through the unbelief of the people, the people reject Jesus as their Messiah, hate his message, turn on him, and have him crucified by the Gentiles, the Romans. Here's what John says in chapter 12. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. This is a marvel. John says that back in Isaiah 6, the Lord was prophesying and decreeing a judgment not just about Israel then and there. In fact, it was a judgment about the people in Jesus' own time when they were confronted with the message of Jesus and they saw him and they heard him and they turned a blind eye and a deaf ear and refused to see and hear what he said and turned and be healed. And in this way, it's precisely because they refused to turn and hear that he would become the stump who is burned to the ground in the place of Israel. In going to the cross, Jesus mysteriously suffers the judgment that Israel herself deserved, her unbelief deserved. He faced the fire of God's judgment by being carried away and punished and faced the fire of God's wrath at the hands of the Gentile nations on the cross. He was burned down to the stump. And yet because of that, Judgment. He would become like a seed that goes into the ground and rises up again, is dead and buried, and brings new life. And this is this is this is this is where we get to see something greater. This is the irony of ironies. 
When John said Isaiah saw these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, who did he see? He saw the one on the throne, the one God of Israel who was Lord himself, who would become incarnate for us in the person of Jesus. This is where things start to kind of connect, and there's a lot of threads here. But the one who sent Isaiah on a mission to preach and to proclaim and to be rejected and condemned and condemn Israel to death is the one who himself would come and proclaim and be rejected and be condemned as Israel himself in her place and for her salvation. Jesus did not send Isaiah down a, th- down a road that he himself would not walk one day. And this is where you see, begin to see the fullness of the truly unique, majestic holiness of God revealed. And that at one and the same time, the judge undergoes the judgment in our place for our salvation in order to redeem us, in order to redeem Isaiah from sin, in order to redeem us from the very blindness and hardness of heart that led us to reject him and kill him in the first place. And when you begin to understand that, when you see that, when you understand the love that mercy and grace and that endurance, that is when you realize that Jesus endured all that for you. For me, for us. And this is when we experience, in a sense, the true apocalypse, the apocalypse of Jesus. And realize, in this, in this sermon, I've been kind of playing uh, and using a little bit of a play on words, it's the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon is uh, kind of how, fa- how, how do you follow Jesus in the face of the apocalypse, but, but in the, I, I've been talking about the apocalypse as the catastrophe, as, as, it, as we kind of use it in, in common, uh, common language. But the term comes in the Greek and in the book of Revelation simply as the word, the revelation. The apocalypse of Jesus is actually the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And it turns out Isaiah's ability to minister in the face of the coming catastrophe could only come through the unveiling of the one who is sending him to face it. It's only in the unveiling of the glory of the king, the fullness of that glory, the glory of his transcendence, the glory of his purity, the glory of his grace, the glory, eventually, of his self-sacrifice that Isaiah could bear up under the weight of it and stand and preach and live and minister. And this is our same hope today. How do you follow Jesus in the face of the catastrophe? You do it in the face of the apocalypse. You do it by looking to him and seeing his life, seeing his death, seeing in all of these things the hope that he has done these things for you. That these things that we face might not be the end of us. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, oftentimes we look for comfort in the middle of pain. We look for comfort in the middle of torment. As a quick fix, a quick evaporation, we look for the coffee cup comfort. That God really loves me. And so this will not be that bad. 
But that's not the comfort God gives. God loves you. And sometimes it is that bad. And that is why he chose to endure it through, endure it with you. To go through it himself. To go through the worst of it. To go through the catastrophe that none of us will ever face. If we put our, put our faith in him. Which is that of the judgment of God. And in so doing, rise again and conquer it. In order to bring about a resurrection life. That will make an end of it. And will redeem all of it. That, that is the comfort that our God gives. That is the comfort of our holy king. And that is the comfort that will bear you up on the darkness, darkest day. When Jesus himself will dispel every cloud on the horizon in the, brining, in the bright and shining light of his glory. Bow your heads and pray with me. Holy Father, you are merciful and good and holy and pure. And you have the power to redeem all our pain, all our tears, all our weeping. Because you have gone through it and come out the other side on our behalf. God, we ask you right now that we would cling to these truths, that you would sear them deep into our souls so that on that, that day we might stand. In Christ, whose name we pray, amen.